0: thank you church and good morning as chuck said i am josh an atypical thing in his words Um, if you are a parent and your kids go to gospel project the time has come your hour has drawn near of course you're welcome to stay in here with your kids um, but if uh, age-specific teaching is what you want for them that is available now This morning, we will be in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, if you want to turn there, if you haven't already. Um, As we go into Mark 14 this week, we are nearing the end game of Mark's gospel. We are in the last major section. Um, as, As Jesus has had a couple of momentous days in the temple, In and around the temple, the confrontations there. He went out from the temple. He went to the Mount of Olives, as Chuck shared, the last two weeks, and preached on the Mount of Olives about the temple's destruction and about things to come. So after these momentous couple of days, Mark 14, 1 through 11, is the quiet before the storm before we go on the road to the crucifixion. So, the religious leaders have retreated back to their private quarters in Jerusalem to find out what the next move is, and Jesus and his disciples have gone out to the nearby village of Bethany um, before celebrating the Passover. So, without further ado, as, as this storm brews in Mark's gospel, let's read together Mark 14. This is God's word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people And while he, Jesus, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at table. As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly why was this ointment wasted like this for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor and they scolded her but jesus said leave her alone why do you trouble her She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could, she has anointed my body for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him, to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Father God, thank you for your word. We pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand your word and see and love Christ in it. Amen. The question hanging over this passage, this text, these two uh, interlocking stories, is a question of value. How much is Jesus worth? We saw in the middle section the woman anointing Jesus with priceless ointment, and the disciples and dinner guests who scold her, whether or not they realize it, have very different answers to that question how much is Jesus worth? But before we look more at that, consider the chief priests and scribes who bookend this story. Remember, this is another one of, Mark does this a lot, where he sandwiches a story in the midst of another to say, these stories should be understood in light of one another somehow. The, the bookends about the plot to kill Jesus, where the chief priests and scribes have a very definite value set on Jesus' head. So, as we said, they have just been humiliated by Jesus in the temple. They've just had their authority undermined. And Mark eleven eighteen says they are afraid of Jesus because he is pointing out their hypocrisy, he's challenging their power, and the people are hearing Jesus gladly. So, they have a Jesus problem on their hands. On the one hand... He, in their minds, cannot be let to continue what he's doing. And the time is ripe to arrest him because he's in Jerusalem. He's right under their nose. And they're anxious to get rid of him fast. But the text says it's the eve of Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. Passover is the most important holiday of all the Jewish holidays and they are at Jerusalem. During Passover, pilgrims from all over Israel would flock to Jerusalem. Um, One estimate says that around this time, the population of Jerusalem was about 30,000 people, but during Passover, there would be about 180,000 people there. If my math is right, that is six times the population, but you better check me on that. The city is full, the nearby villages are full, people are camped around the city. Uh, It's like Black Friday mixed with the festivity of Christmas. And the chief priests are saying, we don't want to turn the Black Friday crowd against us. So they say, we want to arrest Jesus, but, but not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So, Mark says they were looking for a means by stealth. To arrest him. It looks really bad if Jesus publicly bests you in a confrontation and then you grab him in front of the people who are hearing him grab- gladly and put him to death. Nothing would undermine their authority more than that. So they're looking for a stealthy way, a private way to arrest him. And really, that term by stealth um, has the sense of, um, in the original language, has the sense of underhandedness. You could could say in verse 2 there, they were seeking how they might, by treachery, arrest and kill him. By treachery. Mark's point is, these aren't men with a just cause in mind. These aren't concerned spiritual leaders looking out for the well-being of their people. Justice doesn't need to hide in the dark. Justice doesn't need treachery. These are treacherous men, afraid of Jesus, anxious to preserve their power because they know they can't justify themselves before Jesus. So they just want to make him disappear, and they're willing to pay good money to find a treacherous means to make Jesus go away. And as Mark tells us, at the end, in verses 10 through 11, they find their treacherous means before long. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. So their whole conundrum is solved. One of Jesus' inner circle has come. They have an inside man now to betray Jesus to them. It's strange for us. Uh, Mark tells us almost nothing about Judas except that he was one of the disciples. Nothing about his motivations or about why he betrayed Jesus, but he makes it clear that Jesus or Judas did betray him. Not only that, but he profited off of it. Judas betrayed Jesus and profited off of it. And when he comes to the, the temple authorities, the chief priests and scribes, they are delighted that he's come to them. They are glad and are willing to pay good money. I think it it can be easy, just as an aside here, it can be easy to read the Gospels and think the Pharisees or the chief priests, they're the antagonists in the story, and so they're going to do bad things. That's their role in the story. But I want to invite you Take a minute to consider who these chief priests were supposed to be. They were supposed to be uh, the the mediators between God and his people. They were supposed to be the, the spiritual leaders of Israel, the examples. But their affections are backwards. They delight in betrayal. They use treacherous means. They have become so high on their own power on the profit they're making off of the temple ministry, off the prestige it allows them, that they will sink to any means to preserve their status quo. This is just the nature of what happens when people fall in love with power. It's something any of us are prone to. Ask yourself, what, what parts of your life require stealth to preserve? What aspects of your life need to be done in secret or require half-truths or lies to preserve? The negative example of, of these chief priests show that when we hide sin, it multiplies, it festers, and it it becomes worse and worse. That's how you end up as someone, as a spiritual leader, setting blood money out to kill a enemy of yours. Harboring sin only leads us to double down and multiply our sin. But from their perspective, nevertheless, their problem is solved. You can see that in the text. In verse 1, we started with, they were seeking, the chief... Uh, priests and scribes were seeking but by verse 11 now Judas was seeking they they've passed their task off to him and now it's Judas who is the uh, the hired gun who is uh, their their scheme for catching Jesus so they have after retreating from the temple they've made their play they've set their scheme in motion But remember, Mark has sandwiched the story about the woman anointing Jesus into the midst of this to put these two stories in comparison. It's to say, while the religious leaders are orchestrating Jesus' murder, Jesus, in the meantime, is doing the opposite. He is preparing to die. As we read on in this story, it's clear that Jesus is not caught unawares. He knows what's coming. Whatever we see in the coming verses in chapter 14 and 15, we know that Jesus faced his death willingly and knowingly. As he says in verse 8, my body is being prepared for burial. So with that in mind, The way he spends to choose his final day before being arrested and killed clues us into what he values. What's he doing? He is at Bethany in the house of a guy named Simon the leper reclining at the table with the disciples and the friends he loves. That's how he's chosen to spend these crucial final hours. Spending time with those he loves. But the the narrative really picks up with this woman who enters in verse 3. The background is Jesus is here in the house eating with his friends and disciples, and in verse 3, Mark says, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. So, what she's done, this woman has come and anointed Jesus. Um, anointing is a strange act for us. Uh, we don't do that in our culture. Uh, the closest thing we have to it is probably a Gatorade bath uh, for a football coach, um, which is not exactly the same thing, but I think there's some overlap. Anointing is a general sign of respect, and typically, you would do it with oil, olive oil or or some sort of oil like that. It can mean a lot of different things. It's sometimes used to commission kings or priests, um, and it's especially a sign of hospitality. A host would anoint an honored guest, or even a guest might anoint his host with oil to show honor to them. But Mark spends all the emphasis in this verse 3 telling us what she anoints him with, Not olive oil, but nard. Um, In the original language, it's like this awkward, clunky sentence as Mark is trying to emphasize to you how expensive and valuable this thing is. He says an alabaster and then four adjectives in a row. An alabaster of ointment, of nard, very pure, very costly. The point is, this is an unusually extravagant and expensive thing to anoint someone with. And not just anoint them with it, but to pour out an entire bottle on someone. It's unusually extravagant and expensive. But but what's the significance of anointing with oil as opposed to myrrh? Or as opposed to uh, perfume, rather. Um, When Luke tells a similar story about anointing, Jesus makes this point um, in Luke Seven saying uh, to his, his host, he says, "You have not anointed me with oil, but she has anointed me with perfume," indicating that there's something uh, special about what she's anointed him with. Well, Mark tells us it is nard, which is a funny word, but nard or spike nard is a aromatic lotion or a fragrant oil. It's a perfume. Um, And the reason it's so expensive for them is it's an import good from India. It comes from halfway across the world, and there's only one other place in the Bible that talks about Nard, that gives us context for for what she's doing to him. Uh, Nard is talked about here and in John's account of the same story, and then it's talked about in Song of Songs in two places. In Song of Songs, spikenard is an aroma of adoration, of love. The, the point is that the, the good smell of the perfume befits the value of the person you put it on, or it illustrates the affection you have for them. This, as I said, it's, it's an aromatic perfume. When I looked it up, reading for this, um, Some essential oils website told me it smells woody, spicy, and musty. But the testimony is that it smells good. So uh, my way of thinking about it is think of like Old Spice body wash. (laughs) That's sort of the smell we're going for here. Um, In Song of Songs 112, the bride says to her beloved, she says, while the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. So she's associating the goodness, the strength of this smell with her beloved king, with the value associated with him. When John tells this story, he, he illustrates that when she pours out the fragrance, it fills the house. Mark's readers would have understood that implicitly, but but Mark makes it explicit that the the smell fills the house, this good fragrance, so that everybody there is made uh, tangibly aware of what she's just done for Jesus. The fragrance has filled the room. So when this woman breaks and pours the whole vial of perfume on Jesus, she is ascribing value to him. She is showing devotion that is fit for a king. While the king reclines, the spikenard sends forth its fragrance. It's a gesture of adoration. It's a gesture of deep love. As we saw, the gesture makes many who are there uncomfortable and, in fact, indignant Verse 4, Mark says, There were some who were there who said to themselves indignantly, Why this waste of ointment? Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. They, they estimate it's worth 300 denarii. That, that's um, about a year's worth of wages in their culture. It's hard to exactly imagine a a comparable cost for us. It would be like spending all of your 2022 income on taking one person out to dinner. Spending all the money you made in 2022 on one meal. We would probably call that extravagant, to say the least. We would call that wasteful or irresponsible, probably. They suggest... Uh, that it it, it is wasteful. They suggest rather piously that instead she should have sold the perfume and given it to the poor. Uh, That is very in line with uh, the concern for the poor in the Jewish law. It's seemingly in line with what Jesus just said a few chapters ago in Mark 10 when he told the rich young ruler, sell all your wealth and give it to the poor and then come follow me. So, the disciples scold her and tell her, that is a very foolish thing you've done. That's very selfish and wasteful. But that's not how Jesus responds, is it? In verse 6, Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. Not a wasteful thing, not a foolish thing, not an overly extravagant thing, but a beautiful thing. I don't know about you, but I long that my worship would be looked on by Jesus with him saying, You've done a beautiful thing for me. A beautiful thing. We can resonate, perhaps, particularly as Americans, with the sort of pragmatic sense that they have, that things that are purely for the sake of beauty or a show of honor are are wasteful and useless. But Jesus sees the beauty in this act of adoration. He continues and explains more in verse 7. He says, For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Now, at at first pass, maybe you hear that response and think it sounds like Jesus is saying poverty is inevitable, and therefore giving money to the poor is the actual waste. But that is not his point here. He's not saying that you shouldn't give to the poor. Um, When he says the poor will always be with you, he's less talking about how poverty is inevitable although he says it it is a perennial issue, but he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 15.11. Deuteronomy 15.11, God says to his people, giving them this command, he says, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and the poor in the land. In other words, because poverty is a perennial issue, Your very disposition should be charity. Your hand should always be open. So Jesus is not uh, rebuking his disciples and the other dinner guests for concern for the poor. He's rebuking them for a purely theoretical concern for the poor. He's saying you can talk all day about your concern for the poor but the reality is you're happy to hold up a theoretical value to demean someone who has done an actual good. Jesus is saying if this were really about the poor you are capable and in fact obligated to help them yourselves. You're perfectly capable of helping them yourselves. As an aside, church, we should note that as followers of Jesus, we too should, as a disposition, have open hands. I love that that phrasing in Deuteronomy, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in the land. Our very disposition should be that we are people who have been given so much freely How better to show the love of Christ than to live life with an open hand to those in need. There are many other places in the New Testament that talk about the need for Christians to be charitable. Um, As we said, Jesus talks about it in Mark 10 in this same book. James 2 is another place that deals with this issue specifically. But Jesus' point here is that the concern for the poor is kind of a red herring here. He's saying, if the issue were really about the poor, you're perfectly capable of helping them yourselves, but that's not the real heart of the issue here. The heart of the issue, as we said from the outset, is the value of Jesus. For you will not always have me, he says. Whether or not they meant to say it, the disciples who scold this woman reveal that they really don't think Jesus was worth the alabaster flask, that he was worth the costly sign of adoration. This uh, begins to foreshadow what Mark 14 is going to show us in full. Mark 14 is the longest chapter in Mark's gospel, and it details, as we said, Jesus' road to the crucifixion. And along that road... All of his disciples abandon him. Judas, in verse 10, decides he knows exactly how much Jesus is worth. He's worth 30 pieces of silver to him. The disciples, when Jesus gets arrested, decide that he is not worth getting arrested for. And they flee in terror when he gets arrested. Peter himself, the one who declared Jesus as the Christ in Mark's gospel, Peter, by the end of Mark 14, will decide that Jesus is not worth facing uh, being a social outcast for, and he denies Jesus by the end of Mark 14. Here, on the verge of all of those things happening, we see the disciples in the house undervaluing Jesus, showing that they have not yet grasped what it means to adore Jesus, to be devoted to him, to value him above all else, even at great cost. All that's left, then, of their objection against the woman woman, is uh, a hidden sense of self-righteousness, the feeling that she did something greater for Jesus than I was willing to do, and I need to justify why I didn't do that. and I need to demean her in order to do that. that that's really kind of the heart of what's going on here. But, but the problem Jesus points to is that they have undervalued him in doing so. <clears throat> the woman, on the other hand, through, through her actions, through, through the actual things she did says Jesus is invaluable. Jesus is of surpassing value. As Jesus himself explains it, she has done what she could, meaning she has done according to her full capacity of what she was able to do. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She was anointing my body for burial again, Jesus is here in Bethany, preparing for his death in the context of the the, the narrative of mark 's gospel, the overarching narrative. The point of this story is to demonstrate that Jesus went to the cross willingly. He came with the purpose of going to the cross, as he himself said in mark ten forty five The Son of Man came not to serve and not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to give his life on behalf of sinners. Jesus was not thwarted by the plot of the chief priests, but through it he fulfills the whole purpose he came for. And when Jesus associates this anointing that the woman gives him when he associates it with his death he's saying the value of her he's saying the cost of the perfume the extravagance of the anointment it is beautiful it's not a waste but it's beautiful because it's befitting of the death I'm about to die it communicates something about the value of what I'm going to do Let me put that a different way. She has prepared him for a burial fit for a king. A sacrificial king. In her mind, for the king who gives everything to ransom and to vindicate her, how could she give anything less? For the king who would give everything to ransom and vindicate her, how could she give anything less? If we really grasp what Jesus' sacrificial death means, what it means for us, if we really understand the value, not just of Jesus himself, but of the blood he spilled for us, if we really grasp that, We wouldn't think any cost was too extravagant to give back in return. Adoring Jesus is more than saying a hollow thank you to him. It's more than ascribing abstract values to him. True adoration is costly. True adoration involves this commitment, this devotion. It looks like discipleship. This woman gave her treasure in its fullness to him. And she gave it with this abandon, with a resolve, a finality. She, she smashes the jar. She says, I won't need this again. This Jesus is so sufficient, so valuable, so beautiful. The king reclining at his table is so good to me that I will not need this precious perfume any longer. I don't need to save it for a rainy day. I don't need to hold on to a piece of it for later. I'm not waiting for anything better to come along. I've found it. I've found the thing my heart was made to belong to. And he is preparing to die for me. Unlike the disciples or Judas or the chief priests, she's not clinging to anything, not holding something back. And that is costly. It's costly, but do you see what sort of peace comes with it? Do you see what sort of rest comes with that resolve? Everyone else in this story is is working so hard. Striving. The priests are scheming tirelessly, striving to cling to their little slice of power. Judas is seeking an opportunity to betray him. The disciples are worked up in indignation, trying to justify themselves. But Mark, on the other hand, describes Jesus as reclining and the woman as doing the simple act, pouring out the perfume. True adoration is costly, but it comes with rest, with a peace and a finality to it. She's already found what she's looking for rest with Jesus reclining at the table. It's not a sort of peace that means life is easy or without conflict afterwards, but it's a peace of adoring Jesus so completely that sort of all your decisions are made, your devotion is already given. Let me illustrate this again by pointing to the coming events in Mark. The the disciples who undervalue Jesus at this point are the ones who turn tail and run out of anxiety and fear for their life and reputation. But who is it in Mark's gospel who stays with Jesus to the bitter end? It's the women who follow him, it's the women who followed Jesus to the foot of the cross in Mark 15. You can be sure this woman was there among them. Staying at the foot of the cross, fearing neither death nor arrest nor shame. Friend, when you give everything to Jesus, there's nothing left to be afraid or anxious about. If you would cling to power or cling to your secrets, there's no more need. Jesus knows your secret shames and secret sins, and he died to forgive those. He died to wash those away. There's no more need to justify yourself before others. No need to vindicate yourself socially or morally or emotionally because Jesus vindicates those whom he has faith in. See how he vindicated this woman against those who scolded her. Jesus vindicates those who adore him. There's no more need to cling to your treasures, to hold on, to save something for what might come next, because in Jesus you've found a destination, a home. Jesus has given you everything in himself. Adore Jesus, church. Adore the Jesus who died to ransom you, to buy you back from debt. Adore Jesus who willingly died for you and find your rest in him. As Chuck mentioned, I uh, help build the liturgy every week. As we plan out our songs, we always make sure the first or the first two songs are songs of adoration, meaning they're songs purely meant to express love for God and to ascribe uh, goodness to Him, to to show our affection for God. Now, if you're like me, it can be uh, dangerously easy to grow numb to songs like that. It can be dangerously easy for these songs that are so full of high language to kind of lose their gravity, where we say things like, Jesus is highest, he is greatest, he is worthy, He's holy, he is above all else, and those, those superlatives, those extreme words lose their meaning if I am spiritually numb. And I'm just singing words we sing songs as Christians to stir up affections, to sing to one another and remind one another of the, not just the fact of the gospel, but the weight of the gospel. Not just the truth of the gospel, but the beauty and the goodness of the gospel. Not just that Jesus died for sinners, but that Jesus died for us, and that we are who we are because of him. Nevertheless, as Christians, the gospel can grow Overly familiar to us. We we dull or numb on it. The anointing of Jesus here at Bethany is a a picture or an emblem of the value of the gospel. We, We grow numb to the gospel when we don't feel the value of it. When we're undervaluing it One of the purposes of this story is to help depict for us the weight of Jesus' death, the meaning and the cost of it, the value for you and me. That's why Jesus concludes the way he does in verse 9. He says, verse 9, And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So, when Christ crucified, when Christ crucified is preached to the nations, the broken alabaster flask is proclaimed with it, to give a glimpse of just how valuable Jesus' death is, just how costly our redemption was. It says, what she has done will be told in memory of her in, in ESV, that Excuse me. That can sound a little like it's saying, "When this woman dies, write this on her tombstone in memory of her." She broke the alabaster flask, but that's not quite the idea here. The word uh, translated "memory" here um, is also able to be translated as a memorial. In fact, it's the exact same Greek word that the Septuagint, the old, uh, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's the same word the Septuagint uses to translate memorial in the context of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Exodus. So if, if you're unfamiliar with the festivals of the Old Testament, uh, God institutes them after he redeems Israel out of slavery. And he says, you'll keep these feasts and it will be a memorial to you. And that means two things. One, it means you do this holiday, you, you celebrate this feast so that you remember and recognize that God's saving act has made you who you are. So that when you eat the Passover, you know God saved us out of Egypt and it cost the life of a lamb to redeem us. But we are who we are because we are the people God saved through the Passover. And secondly, it's, it's a proclamation to the world. So in Exodus, God says, When people ask you, why are you doing this? You'll tell them, because God saved us out of Egypt, and he made us who we are. And so Jesus, here in Bethany, on the eve of the Passover, says this woman's act, her adoration, her devotion, her discipleship, is a memorial of the death I'm about to die. It's emblematic of it. If you want to see a picture of the gospel's value for you, look at the broken alabaster flask spent with joyful abandon on Jesus, happy to pay a deep cost. Jesus, in other words, is worth all you have. His death is worth all you own because by dying he gave you life. By his death, our debts are paid, our future is secure, our hands are open to the poor, our treasures are poured out on Jesus, our power is handed over to him because Jesus died as a ransom for many. God has given us memorials illustrating the gospel, illustrating the value and the beauty of the gospel, the gravity, the meaning of it, so that, church, when our affections grow numb, When it's hard to feel adoration for God, we can look back on memorials as one way of remembering who we are in Christ. Think of that if if you read this story later this week, that there's a picture here of cost, of value, of beauty. The anointing of Jesus is a picture of how Jesus died as a king died as a king for his people with blood of infinite worth. He suffered at the hands of evil, treacherous men, was treated by them as a criminal, and did that suffering death so that we could have forgiveness. The anointing of Jesus is a picture that adoration is costly but worth it. If our adoration is cold and numb, as we said, it may mean we have undervalued Jesus or we're holding back something from him, something of that costly, pure adoration. Church, do not let the cost of the gospel grow numb to you. Do not let your love grow cold. it should sting us. It should sting us to think that if Jesus did not die, we would be hopelessly lost, hopelessly crushed under the weight of our own guilt, sunk in the debt of our sin. But then all the more, how much more should we rejoice and adore the king who did die for us. In fact, who did willingly die to ransom us back from that debt, to wash away that guilt. The king who died and now reclines at his table where we are seated with him forever. So use the memorials, of the gospel. We'll, we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, next week as Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, but, but this picture here of the anointing of Jesus, of the cost of, the, of, of discipleship, of adoration that is befitting of the value of Jesus's death, use those memorials. The other way the anointing of Jesus can be a memorial is, as Jesus said, in proclaiming the gospel to the world, Just as someone might come in Israel and say, why do you celebrate the Passover? It's because of the God we serve who redeemed us out of slavery in Egypt. In that same way, if we follow in this pattern of the woman of the text, if by trusting wholly in Jesus, adoring him with costly adoration, and finding that rest that comes with it, the peace with Jesus, That is, if we become people fragrant with adoration. If we become people fragrant with adoration. Paul says we are the fragrance of Christ to the world. The reason we don't use alabaster perfume in worship is because now the church is the fragrance of adoration in the world. We have an opportunity to be walking memorials of adoration, walking testimonies to the value of Jesus's blood shed for us and the goodness of the life that is found only in him. We have an opportunity to give an account for the hope we have by adoring in a costly way the Savior who died for us. Would you pray with me now, that we would adore Jesus in that way. Father God, we thank you for the ways that you describe to us, not just the fact of the gospel, but also the beauty and the weight of the gospel. God, we confess our hearts are strange and confusing things. We, We know truths, we believe in truths, but feel numb to them at times. So we pray we would be people who don't just confess the truth, but who live accordingly in light of it. Who don't just say we love you, but who in fact love you in our bones, in our hearts, and in a way that's manifested in the lives we live. God, we pray that we would meditate on this scripture, on the alabaster flask, on the death you died, and that through reading scripture, hearing it preached, praying over it, that you would kindle affections for you in our hearts, that you would kindle true discipleship and true adoration, that we would adore Jesus in the way you've made us to and find rest and peace in that adoration. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.